Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens. Hi, I'm Antonio Sampaio. This week we're looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted naval capabilities around the world and the emerging challenges in naval affairs that could threaten international maritime security. To help us with this, we're joined by Nick Childs, Senior Fellow for Naval Forces and Maritime Security at the WWS. Thanks for joining us today, Nick. Thanks, Mayor. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. So, Nick, um, to start, let's start with the smallest threat, but with greatest impact. So the coronavirus. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of attention on the sidelining of U.S. and French aircraft carriers that suffered outbreaks of the virus. While at the same time, of course, the Chinese Navy hasn't stopped. Uh, It has been upping its activities in the South China Sea to some extent. Do you think the virus has negatively impacted the presence of U.S. and its allies um, in the region? Well, I think the problem, Antonio, is that that was at the very least the perception. And you're right, it was very striking and, and it certainly did grab global attention that you had essentially what have been the apogees of maritime power, particularly for the United States, of aircraft carriers, and in the case of France too, with the Charles de Gaulle, uh, being sidelined because of the uh, because of the pandemic and because of the uh, infection of the crews, and that clearly uh, you know had had an impact. It also had ripple effects in terms of uh, political fallout because the way that uh, the sidelining of the American carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, was handled, the uh, firing essentially of the commanding officer when he when he uh, tried to. Um, make public his uh, concerns, and, and then that led subsequently to the uh, firing of the then Assistant Secretary of the Navy. So clearly, very potent. In a way, it's not surprising that aircraft carriers might be, you know, susceptible, vulnerable to something like this. Uh, having been on, uh, you know, a number of U.S. aircraft carriers, I don't know if you, Mayor and Antonio, have, have done the same, but they are extraordinary. The cliche is cities at sea, but they are mega cities at sea. They are teeming industrial scale power projection platforms. And it's very difficult to to get any kind of privacy or isolation or social distancing uh, when you have an outbreak. So so uh, that clearly was going to have an effect if, 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 if this did take hold on, on these ships. Uh, lessons have certainly been learned as a result of that. And interestingly, the the American aircraft carrier concern, the Theodore Roosevelt, is now back at sea because they isolated uh, the crews and they, they tested them all. And I think one of the lessons that is being learned around the world is that for uh, navies, there are potential vulnerabilities, but there are also ways of changing the patterns of operation, like isolating crews uh, before you go to sea, before you deploy, and the Americans are doing that. Uh, when you're at sea and you're free from the pandemic, then you stay at sea for as long as possible. That adds adds strains, but it can be a way of m- uh, managing managing an additional problem, uh, minimizing port visits. All of those things are true and uh, uh, can have uh, a beneficial effect on on navies coping and uh, and responding. But it was Antonio to go back to your point the. The perception, at least, that you know the pandemic had, in some ways, perhaps provided more space for those who might want to assert themselves, 
doing so because they had more political, diplomatic and even operational space to do that. And that's maybe what we saw with China, but that some like the United States appeared more disadvantaged and distracted. It was certainly more complicated than that. there were plenty of US Navy ships at sea, but that at least was the perception. And if you'll pardon the pun, it made it a much more fluid uh, situation at sea in terms of uh, you know, balance of power and maneuvering and, 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 and each side kind of probing the other to test them uh, than it had been in the past. And, and, and I think we're now seeing the unfolding of responses to that as well. That's really interesting. And and you're right to mention that, of course, it wasn't just the U.S. that um, had to deal with um, uh, the need to be more flexible at sea uh, in response to uh, the COVID um, crisis and and further um, outbreaks of the epidemic on on ships. I think similarly, it was reported on on submarines. um, and uh, and the Chinese, of course, have also um, taken care to uh, limit the uh, uh, contact of their uh, sailors with um, with with uh, other parts of the population when uh, uh, in harbor in China. But I was um, I wanted to touch go back to China um, and the Chinese Navy. There's been a lot of debate about the rise of of the PLA Navy more generally. Um, could you talk a little bit about why this rise in China's naval capabilities and operations is so important um, and why there's such a focus on this within uh, naval affairs in recent years? Well, I think it's a combination of things. It, one of them is the dramatic rise and the clear ambition of China to become a major naval power. And one's seen that in the amount of investment they've put into essentially transforming their navy from what was in in many ways a fairly limited regional um, capability to something that in in fairly rapid order has turned into at least the potential to have great global capabilities. And that just in terms of the statistics is quite striking as I think you particularly Mayor, will remember that we did some analysis um, a couple of years ago on the output of Chinese shipyards in terms of naval vessels. Over a period of four years, Chinese shipyards uh, turned out uh, the equivalent in total tonnage of shipping for uh, naval vessels of all types, uh, something equivalent to the entire tonnage of the Royal Navy or the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, bigger in terms of total tonnage than the whole of the French Navy. So, so those are striking statistics, and they are coupled with the fact that it seems to be across the board, that, that the, the level of intent is signaled by the fact that they are developing all, all sorts of different capabilities. Uh, and that is coupled with the general um, rise of, of China, the arrival of China, as, as, as you might say, that you are very closely following, uh, and the return, if you like, of the concepts, the concerns about great power competition, and those two together have meant that actually, uh, more generally than just the rise of China, it comes against the backdrop of the fact that at sea, the the domain is more contested now than than it has been in the past. In recent decades, dare one say it, um, the United States and its allies were almost unchallenged at sea. And really, the sea became a sort of uh, beneficial 
superhighway on which the uh, United States and its allies could project their power. That's no longer the case. They are potentially in a contest for uh, influence and control at sea, and that's dramatically different. So things like uh, the aircraft carriers that have been so much the symbols of um, the uh, US naval dominance in recent times, um, you know, may not be the uncontested um, rulers of the sea that they, they were in the past. And that's why you see in the context of the pandemic, so much focus on does this change the balance of power? Does this change the balance of influence and the balance of advantage at sea? Uh, and, and, and does it add extra risks? And that's why there, there has, I think, been concern about whether you know, China has been testing and probing and, 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 and being a little bit more assertive to see, to see what the state of play at sea is and why in the aftermath of what seemed to be the United States being perceived as being at least partially incapacitated, particularly in the Pacific, they, the, the US Navy has gone out of its way in return to kind of parade the fact that they are very much out and about now. Uh, not only has the Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier, gone back to, to sea, but they actually extraordinarily have paraded the fact that they have had seven aircraft carriers at sea uh, recently. So that's remarkably um, more capability than really anybody else, or all the rest of the you know, carrier powers put together. And, and unusually, they took the step, for example, of in the Pacific announcing the fact that all their submarines were at sea. Normally, navies don't like to talk too much about what their submarines are up to. But, um, but, but I, I think that's, that's a sign of how, in the context of the pandemic, uh, at sea, this has been a domain in which powers have been testing the, the, you know, the readiness and alertness of each other and trying to find perhaps new levels of what I call kind of pandemic deterrent. So, so they are, there is a lot of maneuvering going on at the moment. When it comes to the PLA Navy though, are we at danger of, of focusing too much at a uh, surface ship and other uh, ship num vessel numbers? Um, should we be looking also, of course, at uh, the quality of manning of those ships? And how does China stand there? Well, I think yeah, that's a very good question, Mayor, and I think absolutely is the answer. Uh, I think it, it feeds into the question of, to some extent, are we at an inflection point in terms of China's capabilities? Uh, they have invested in a, in, in a very modern and impressive looking fleet, but can they actually put it together to deliver a step change in capability? And that is to do with being able to organise their fleets and formations to be able to operate effectively, being able to join up with the other um, elements of um, armed forces, to join up with new and emerging capabilities that we hear a lot of in terms of, 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 of Chinese investment uh, in, in emerging technologies. And uh, you know, whether all of those uh, will also allow them to be able to make that extra step to be able to deploy in greater capability further afield than they have been in the past. They've been learning very much uh, the uh, basics of being able to operate at range uh, out, out, outside their, their, back, their, their normal backwaters, if you like. That's, that's been a large part of the strategic reason behind China maintaining continuously since 2008 a counter-piracy um, patrol uh, in the Gulf of Aden learn how to and get experience on how to do that kind of deployment. Uh, 
are they now in a position where they can do that on a greater scale in future and therefore have more influence in a broader sense than they have before? On this matter of the scale of China's uh, capabilities, Nick, um, the new commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, General David Berger, has recently uh, come under friendly fire for his um, announced strategy or plans for the for the Marines in the in the in the near the near future, which is more of a focus on assisting the uh, U.S. Navy in raids or training its its marine force to 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 assist um, other forces in raiding and focusing on 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 the um, east. China and South China seas, um, and that has been seen as sort of co- contradicting the the previous focus of the Marines as a more flexible, more um, um, globally deployed force, is focusing too much on uh, East Asia. Do you think that there is this risk that the U.S. military, especially, uh, but potentially other forces as well, are focusing too much on China as a threat, and that may be sort of uh, harming its preparation for other theatres. Antonio, I think uh, it's true to say that the, the commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Berger, you know, really did you know, grab the attention with his new vision of, of how the US Marine Corps uh, should evolve. And you're right, it is precisely in response to the, the, the challenge posed, particularly in the Pacific region, particularly by China. And I think he got a lot of credit uh, initially for Amidst all the concerns about you know what the ch- what the challenge from China uh, potentially is, particularly for the United States, there's been a lot of debate around. It shows that we can't do things. We, the United States, or or you know potential uh, competitors of China, can't do things the way we were able to in the past. We need to change. But I think there was a concern that there's been a lot of lip service paid to that without a- anyone actually wanting to give up their sacred cows, if you like. And, and in the US Navy's case, there's been this debate, as, as we've discussed briefly, on aircraft carriers and the future of aircraft carriers um, faced with the carrier killer missile capability, supposedly, as it's as it's dubbed, that, that China can deploy, but others, others too. And General Berger got a lot of credit for saying, uh, I, I take this on and I am prepared to deal with sacrifice some of these sacred cows that we've had in the past the way we the, the way that the US Marine Corps has operated uh, particularly you know large concentrations on big ships which are to deliver um, large forces across across a beach or um, um, you know on, on onto a onto an island or whatever it happens to be these are just you know too too vulnerable and, and not survivable we have to change we have to disperse we have to be more agile in that context but um, there are two questions around that, one of which is, does that vision actually deliver what he says it's going to deliver? Can they support it? Can they can they um, provide the new capabilities that will allow US Marines to be able to function and be effective in the future uh, in that environment? Um, but the other the other part of it is, are they giving up too much of those other capabilities? One of the, one of the um, headline grabbing items is that he wants to get rid of all U.S. Marine Corps tanks. He doesn't want the U.S. Marine Corps to be like uh, a version of the U.S. Army that it's that it's been in recent times in order to be able to focus more on supporting the Navy. But that means it won't be able to do maybe some of the other things that uh, the U.S. Marine Corps has been required to do in the past. So I think I think he's 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 got a battle on his hands. There there will be a lot of toing and froing over how this unfolds. But I think at heart 
uh, it does look like a you know reasonable attempt and an, and an honest attempt to answer that question of we can't go on as we have been we need to think differently and this is this is my vision perhaps moving on to another one of um the us's um, strategic challenges um, countering Russia. I mean, Russia is also developing its naval ambitions, of course. Um, could you speak a little bit about um, what developments you've seen with regards to the Russian Navy and how this might also impact maritime security more broadly? I think, Mayor, in general, there's there's been very much a sense that uh, here is another player on the global stage who who is a revisionist who wants to exert influence and from a very low base it, after the end of the cold war and basically the whirlwind of the disintegration of the soviet union and what that meant for particularly the ex-soviet armed forces and the and the russian armed forces that they became uh, they were in the doldrums for an awful long time and in the context of a more contested relationship that Russia is having, particularly with its neighbours in, in Europe and with NATO and the, and, and the United States, the investments that have been made in, in Russian maritime capabilities suddenly look quite challenging again. It's not on the scale of what it was before in, in Soviet times, but they have always had a very capable submarine service. They've got new submarines coming in that are, are very potent. They are, to some extent, transforming their navy, um, their surface fleet, to a concentration on not so much big ships, which they still have legacies from the from the Soviet era that are good for gunboat diplomacy around the world, but smaller ships with very potent offensive missile capabilities that could pose, you know, challenges for NATO NATO nations, uh, particularly around Europe. Uh, because they have a new capability that they didn't have before, not just to be able to attack ships, but to be able to attack critical infrastructure targets, um, potentially in, 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 NATO, in NATO countries. And we saw that paraded very strikingly when from very small ships in the Caspian Sea and, and from submarines in the Mediterranean, they were started firing land attack cruise missiles into Syria, against Syrian targets in, in Russia's intervention in that conflict and i think that got everyone sitting up all of a sudden to realize that that russia had this new capability you have to calibrate it that it's that that it's it's not on the scale that the chinese are developing they have lots of constraints uh, in russia particularly in terms of their ability to spend and actually to build ships it's it takes them a long time to do that but i think part of the problem is again uh, going back to this question of the, the maritime domain has 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 been the benign superhighway for the U.S. and its allies for, low, for so long that actually a lot of the capabilities of navies at sea to take on things like potentially Russian submarines have also atrophied. So 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 there's a bit of a uh, you know a relearning and a and a refocus on on both sides because what uh, Russia has got does present you know a significant challenge to what NATO particular in recent recent times has been able to deliver as far as its own naval capabilities are concerned. Right, and we're not just speaking about Russia or China on their own in, in, to a certain extent. Um, we are, but we have seen it an uptick in the number of joint naval drills between uh, with Russia and uh, and China together, correct? How much of this, uh, how much does this pose an additional uh, challenge, do you think? Is this just political signaling or, or is there more to it? I think it is it is a 
again, it's a bit of a cliche. It's a bit of a marriage of convenience uh, that uh, it, 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 it allows both, if you like, to be able to assert individually, uh, but also collectively and bilaterally, that there are other players on the block now, and um, that there are potential uh, avenues for for, um, for 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 cooperation. And I think it will probably become more the case as China, in particular, expands its horizon, expands its. Um, uh, operational uh, presence in in far off seas as far as it is concerned uh, that you you may well see more of that how much it will really amount to a a thoroughgoing operational capability i i somehow have my doubts but it is a way of particularly in a um uh, a, uh an era in which we are of uh, gray zone below the threshold of armed conflict, threshold maneuvering and uh, confrontation and tensions, then a bit of political signaling by those two navies can have a, a significant impact. And, it, and you see that in a, in a number of cases, like when China first uh, carried out a naval exercise with Russia in the Baltic, like in the aftermath of the recent tensions in the Gulf that China and Russia and Iran carried out, admittedly very limited, naval manoeuvres uh, just outside the Gulf uh, in a few, a few months ago. Um, Nick, we recently, uh, as, as you know, uh, released a book called The Armed Conflict Survey, and one of the uh, key messages of the book or findings is that conflict resolution um, in general, globally, has been on not not exactly in decline, but has been increasingly difficult to achieve. Conflicts have been going on forever and ever. Um, and the South China Sea seems to me like one of those items that that are on the research agenda of the defense and military program uh, at the ISS for, for a long time. And of course, um, in the news for, for a very long time as, as an area of tension and potential conflict. Do you see a way or um, a potential window for a known military de-escalation, uh, I mean, a way of reducing tensions through diplomatic means um, in a way that we don't continue to have this constant debate about um, what capabilities can we deploy to deter China or what is China doing to deter the US? Is there a more diplomatic and um, less military-based solution to this issue? I think... There is a history, particularly at sea, of of you know efforts at least to to reduce uh, tensions, to find uh, ways of codes of conduct, in particular, that that, that might ease tensions or allow them uh, prevent them from overspilling. And in some ways, uh, the maritime domain, because uh, because of its expansiveness, because uh, it's not land territory. Um, to some extent offers opportunities for that, but uh, as well as the case that it's, it, it's, it's also been providing in terms of disputes over territorial waters, uh, economic zones and, and the like, the, the, um, the domain in which some of these tensions are being played out most prominently. Uh, so there is a history of that sort of thing, and, and, and particularly in, in East Asia, you, you have seen attempts to try and you know, navigate a path of, of you know, better relationships between 
navies and, and, and naval formations. And they tend to work up to a point. Uh, but I think the problem uh, that is found, particularly in East Asia, but I think is the case more generally, that they only work up to a point. They work up to a point of uh, being able to allow um, you know, reasonable kind of day-to-day -day operations and, and, and cooperation. But when you try to then take them to another level uh, where they begin to impinge on some of those political diplomatic disputes, then that's where these things tend to get stalled. And I think that's still the, 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 the space that we're in at the moment. Uh, returning to more Navy-focused uh, questions, from our conversation, it seems that there is, is a time of major changes in naval affairs. Do you think that naval, Western navies are suitably equipped to face emerging maritime challenges? Um, we've seen a number of um, countries like China, like the UK, um, build on their um, aircraft carrier capabilities. But do you think that these are still the key capabilities uh, that modern navies should aspire to obtain? Mayor, I think it is a case that there is a debate about this in a way that hasn't been before uh, to the extent and the level that, that there is at the moment. And that is in part because particularly of the, of, the, of the capability challenges that China presents, but not just China, that appear to be specifically directed at neutralizing the advantage that aircraft carriers bring. There's no doubt that same time, being a member of the Aircraft Carrier Club is an enormously expensive occupation. Uh, there are many benefits to it, uh, but it is not cheap. And I think those things have come together to raise questions about uh, both the survivability of, of aircraft carriers, particularly given how much they cost, um, but also what the alternatives are. I, I, I think one of the issues is that um, there is an awful lot of investment in the aircraft carriers, particularly in, in, in the US Navy. They remain at the heart of US naval capabilities. So I don't see that going away. And the other thing is that uh, aircraft carriers are incredibly useful for a vast variety of um, things from being able to project power in a limited way to being platforms for you know, even you know huge humanitarian and disaster relief uh, operations so they're incredibly useful they're a giant metal box that you can do an awful lot with so for that reason i think they will uh, continue to uh, have a role I think as far as China is concerned, I doubt if they will go head to head in any confrontation with the US Navy. That's not what China wants its aircraft carriers for. It's more to, to be, have influence and to be able to exert uh, power and influence in, in, in lesser um, contingencies against, dare I say it, lesser powers. Likewise, I think in an American context, even for the US Navy, uh, they will have to change the way they operate because they are being challenged more than in the past. Um, but that doesn't mean that the aircraft carriers will go away. The problem is, and it's a problem for the US Navy at a certain level, but also a problem for others that aspire to having aircraft carriers, is, is getting the balance right because aircraft carriers 
can't just operate on their own. It's getting the balance of the fleet to be able to make the aircraft carriers effective, but also to be able to do all those other things for which aircraft carriers are not the answer, for which different capabilities, smaller, cheaper ships that can be in more places at one time, new emerging technologies, particularly uninhabited systems, um, can provide uh, a lot of capabilities as well. So I think the balance is changing and the role of the aircraft carrier will change as well, but I don't think they'll be going away anytime soon. So uh, quickly um, to conclude, Nick, this, on this issue of uninhabited systems, um, what can we expect in the naval, in the maritime security domain in terms of new technologies and their use? Well, in terms of uninhabited systems, Antonio, I think to some extent navies have been a bit behind the curve. But I think after years of talking about how uninhabited systems might help them, uh, there is a sense of pressure it's partly a funding pressure, but also a pressure of the challenges that traditional naval forces and platforms are now facing will mean that there will be a, a bit of a transformation in actually delivering on some of those capabilities. And it'll be across the board. It'll be everything from enabling aircraft carriers to be more useful by having more uninhabited long range systems on board that allow them, the aircraft carriers, to uh, stay safer at longer range from their potential targets and adversaries to being able to use unmanned uh, platforms to have a presence, particularly in areas uh, where there is very severe you know, contested environments uh, to to maintain presence where large manned platforms aren't perhaps the best thing to have. Uh, but also, I think in some of those areas of intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, maritime awareness, being being used to be able to plot uh, what everyone else is doing at sea, where, uh, whether that's above the sea, on the sea surface, or perhaps even more particularly in the subsurface environment, that you'll see uninhabited autonomous systems uh, really begin to take off. And it, and it is in part that capability challenge but also that funding challenge. And that is going to be, I think, one of the things, one of the fallouts from potentially the, 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 the pandemic uh, for defence forces generally, but, but navies, which are expensive things, is uh, what the legacy of the pandemic will be in terms of what the maritime environment will be, but also in terms of what funding there will be in order to be able to deliver naval capabilities in the future. Thank you very much, Nick. This has been very uh, informative and we hope you enjoyed this episode as well. And don't forget to follow, rate and subscribe to Sounds Strategic for more in-depth conversations on key defense and security issues. To keep up to date on more ISS research and analysis, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. See you next time. <laughs>